0: Good morning. So before we get enter into our time together uh, in the Word, I want to take a moment to share some exciting news with you. Um, you may have been noticing here in the last few weeks that things aren't as torn up, at least on our property as they used to be. Uh, LaToya is completely another story. we will be for quite some time. But here we are getting really close to being able to dedicate our new space. And I want to announce that on August 25th, two Sundays from today, between services... We're going to be meeting out in that new area where the new building is, and we're going to be dedicating that space. So I want to warmly invite you to that. I also want to let you know that it's it's easy to just focus on that building that's that's come off the ground, but there are six other areas in our property here that have been either renovated or expanded through this process this summer. I don't know if you realize that. And we'll be speaking of those and dedicating those spaces that Sunday. But even just behind you, there's a room back there with some funny-looking glass behind it. And that's we're almost, close, we're almost ready now to dedicate a cry room, which will be available for moms and for parents with, uh, with kids have, who have special needs. It has a one-way glass in there. And we'll, we need, still need to get some furniture set up in there and some other things. But that's, again, close to being ready as well. So, again, mark your calendars August 25th between services as we dedicate that space. Well, this morning we're going to be wrapping up our series of messages called Tattoo, or Tattoo, (laughs) 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 Taboo, by dealing with four different topics this morning. And I want to ask the members of our preaching team who will be helping me this morning to, to join me up here, would you give them a hand? So what we wanted to do this morning as we wrap up our time in taboo is to be able to touch on a few topics that I just wasn't able to get to in the context of a whole message. There were so many good ideas that you guys gave me of taboo topics that you want us to talk about. And rather than just just cutting it off, what we're going to do is we're going to take this time over the next half hour or so and take four of your topics and do a quick dive in. Talk about those a little bit. Give you some resources uh, that are available online in your your sermon notes at mygrace.church in the messages tab that you can dig into where you can dig into these topics a little bit more in the days to come but here are the four topics we'll be dealing with this morning number one we're going to be talking about the topic of evolution versus creation that's kind of a taboo topic we've identified that you guys wanted to hear more about we'll also be talking about mental illness for a little bit we'll be talking about tattoos yes i I didn't just come out of nowhere it's in my head i'm thinking about it just so you know no just kidding And uh, lastly, we're going to be wrapping things up by talking about the concept of judging others. That was a real uh, important topic you guys wanted us to discuss. So this morning, what we're going to do is just... I'll just start off by um, opening up the first question that we received here this morning. Could we put that on the screen? Uh, This was the evolution creation question. Um, This is kind of a summation of the the, uh, interest and the questions that you guys have sent to me. So it wasn't a specific person's question, but it's kind of an amalgamation of those Uh, The question is this, in the creation-slash-evolution debate these days, it seems that evolution is the only answer in education circles, and that creation is the only answer in faith circles. It seems taboo to even suggest the opposite viewpoint in either of these circles. So how can we better look at this topic?
1: Jim? Right, so we each have about five minutes, so if you're... um... (laughs) Hoping for the definitive answer about why, uh, how humans relate to organisms and monkeys and dinosaurs, you might be disappointed. <laughs> but I do want to just suggest a couple um, principles to approach the topic. And then I'll give you a little bit of the, some of the perspectives that Christians have and point you to the resources again. So first of all, I want to start with a verse in in the book of Revelation. If you can put the slide up. Revelation 4.11 so if you remember in Revelation John gets transported to heaven and here's the angels and the creatures that are around the throne and they say you are worthy O Lord our God to receive honor and glory and power for you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. So nobody disagrees with this in the Christian community although I have other opinions on Genesis 1 but this is fundamental this is what we declare to be true, and um, it's what heaven declared to us to be true, that we are created things uh, for God's pleasure. And then Paul follows that up with a little bit of the, so we have the who, and Paul follows up a little bit with the why when he's talking to the Athenians, and we have this in the book of Acts, Acts 17, where Paul says, from one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries, his purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, though He is not far from any one of us. So, primary foundation, and this shouldn't be new, to hopefully, to anybody, but God is the Creator, and He created us and this world for us to know Him. And so, Jesus and all the apostles agree on the who and the, and the why, and that should really be our starting point. Second, I want to put science in perspective a little bit i have science is a wonderful and extremely helpful discipline that's brings us a lots of understanding and i've worked with scientists basically my whole career almost 30 years with biologists and chemists trying to discover new medicine so i know the methods and the process pretty well science is based on the idea of repeatable observation and measurable experiments And the scientific method, by definition, says that you want to exclude things, assumptions that fall outside of that method. But we know, as Christians, that much of what we believe to be vitally true and that we experience uh, falls outside the boundaries of the scientific method. The existence of God, the resurrection from the dead, miraculous healings, the activity of the Holy Spirit, angels, demons, heaven, hell, all of these things that the Bible teaches us and that we and experience are outside, for the most part, the scientific method. So we can't expect science to prove or disprove what can't be known by its method. But God has revealed things to us and has demonstrated things to be true, and I believe that that should impact our understanding of what we see and, and the hypothesis that we generate. So I would just suggest that science, although it's helpful... It's limited, and it's not the ultimate authority. Science is not God. God is God, and it's helpful to remember that. So that's kind of the second foundational piece as you think about creation. Okay, so what about Genesis? Well, there are devout Christians of many categories who accept these two foundational principles but have different interpretations when it comes to Genesis 1 and and how God actually did it. And I think it can be understood from a sort of simple perspective boiled down to answering the following two questions. First of all, how long is a day? If you remember in Genesis 1, it says, you know, the fish were created in the first day and the birds in the second day and so on. So key question is how long is a day? That's a Hebrew word. And in the Hebrew Old Testament, sometimes it means 24-hour period, and sometimes it means a very long period. And so there is a difference of how to answer that question when it comes to Genesis 1. And the second one is, how literal is the description meant to be? You know, did it follow the exact order that's described in Genesis 1? Uh, Did it happen quickly? Did it happen lengthily? So answering those two questions kind of gave rise to the three I think, most prominent positions that are held by sincere Christian theologians and scientists. So the first is young earth creationism, meaning that the there were seven 24-hour periods in which God did all of the creation of the universe and made the world appear the way it is now, followed by a cataclysmic worldwide flood in the time of Noah that gave rise to a lot of the geology that we see today. So that's the first perspective. The second is what's called old earth creationism. So that's the idea that God was still very active in creating things out of nothing, but it was over a much longer period of time than a day. was actually perhaps uh, thousands or millions of years. And then the third position is known by evolutionary theism, meaning God was still active, but for the most part, it's the way science currently theorizes that it happened. So... What's important, I think, to understand is that there are very intelligent, very sincere, very Christ-following people that ascribe to all of these opinions. And I I I found it very interesting that you will probably find somebody who actually came to Christ, came to belief in Jesus through all three of these um, understandings. So if you happen to believe very passionately about one of these um, I would just invite you to give grace to those in the other camp. Uh, they're also trying to follow God and seek understanding. And just a, a quick word on intelligent design if you've heard that expression, it's not an alternative to these three, it's really um, an attempt to formulate an understanding using kind of the scientific method to explain how what we see is best explained by a design behind it. So it's not an alternative, but a supplement, particularly to the first two. So what about evolution? I can't obviously give you the answer, um, but I can say God. it's clear to us that God created us, created us to seek him. Science has some answers, but not all the answers. And so we've... If you don't know, you have you hear mygrace.church, you can find all the resources. There's also a handout that's sometimes you can get from the usher or in the basket in the back that has a list of resources describing these terms and these positions, and you're certainly welcome to follow that up or ask me a question. And I was going to let the panel also make a comment if there was one or more.
2: Sure. Well, um, so just to revisit a little bit on the... Um, maybe emphasize additional thoughts on the how versus the who. We may not, on, there, though there may be a number of different uh, perspectives on the how, but as Christians we really do need to be very clear on on the who, right? That God is creator, that this world exists by God's intent. That's the, that's the outgrowth of that, right? If God is a creator, it means that none of this is an accident. And you are not an accident. We are not an accident. God intended for each of us to exist. And... And the other thing that's important to remember is, as Dave uh, told us a number of weeks ago, we as humans are uniquely made in the image of God. That is true. Um, and we need to hold very, very closely to that because it's key to our understanding of what it means to be chosen by God uh, and to really ultimately be, become his children. Um, but another thing I think I to, I'd, I'd want to talk about with regard to the who is also just, um, as, as Jim said, giving grace to those who may be in a different camp. I think in the past there's been a lot of um, uh, uh, an adversarial kind of relationship oftentimes between the creation and evolution camp. And, and what that can lead to is um, diverting focus away from the real who and the real center of our faith. The center of our faith is Jesus Christ. The center of our faith is what, what he has done and how he has brought uh, forgiveness and God's love into our lives for what he has done. The center of our faith is not creationism. But the more we spend time arguing one side or the other, we divert focus from Christ. And so um, I think we need to remember as we talk about these things in different perspectives that we do it in grace and that we always come back to recognizing that the center of our faith is Jesus, what he has done, and the love that he extends to people and the forgiveness he extends to all mankind.
1: Thanks, Thanks, Brian.
3: I just wanted to add in that I, I used to think for much of my uh, adult Christian life, I used to think that I had to have a position or an answer on that initial Genesis question. You know, is the world 6,000 years old or 4 million years old? That I had to somehow know. And otherwise, I was about to lose a discussion or an argument on the, on the reality of Christianity. And, and then I, I came to a point where I remembered what I'd learned from Job, Um, You know Job suffers greatly um, in, in the story of Job and for about 35 chapters he questions God and he and his friends try to explain it all. They try and figure it out. They question God about how it's not fair. And in chapter 38 this is I think a perspective that can be helpful for us if we find ourselves not really knowing some of the answers. In chapter 38 God answers Job. Out of the storm he says brace yourself. I will question you and you shall answer me and begins asking some questions. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely, you know who stretched a measuring line across it. Where were its footings set? He begins asking Job these questions that, of course, Job can't answer. Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. (laughs) It's very humbling for Job. Uh, God doesn't stop. God keeps going because he's really (laughs) wanting to make a point. (laughs) Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom uh, and spread his wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command, Job, and build his nest on high? And uh, pretty soon after, Job was like, okay, I get it. You're God, and I'm human, and I can't fully understand how the creator of the universe makes it all work. We as Christians don't have to fully understand it all. It's good for us to try to, to learn and try and discover, but none of us should ever lose an argument or somehow have our faith feel that, that is, it's becoming weakened or questioned because we don't have all the answers of the universe that God has. That just
1: That's fact. great. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Tim.
0: So our next question here this morning is around mental illness. Um, and that question is this. Can you put it up? There we go. Many still see mental illness as a taboo topic, even today. Some see mental illness as a physical ailment of the mind, while others see it as a spiritual or a sin problem, not being obedient to God's expectations on our behavior. Which is it? So is this, is this a physical thing, or is this something you know, that we, need, we just need to control in our own lives? Well, as we get started with this conversation, um, there'll be another little bit of input beyond mine, but let me just start with this. Uh, What is mental illness? Because this is such a stigmatized topic in my mind in our culture today, especially in our country, that let me just start by saying, what is mental illness as we're talking about this morning? So here's what the American Psychiatric Association says it is. It's a health condition involving changes in emotion, thinking, or behavior, or a combination of those. Wow. That covers a lot of people, right? A lot of us. Mental illness is associated with distress and our problems functioning in social work or family activities. Now, I share that this morning because of this. There is this stigma in our country, even today, around mental illness that I hope at some point in our future we can dispel. That stigma is, is that, you know, if you have a physical illness of any kind, well, that's just normal. That just kind of comes with the territory of being a human. But if you have a mental illness, well, then you're a little crazy, right? There's there's something off. There's something not right with you. And it becomes even an identity question for many of us, uh, as opposed to what it truly is, which is a condition that happens to affect our brains rather than some other organ in our body. Uh, As you'll see on the screen there, one out of every five people in any given year in America... Struggle with some sort of mental illness. One out of five. And that covers the whole gamut, including depression and anxiety. And one out of every 24 have a serious form of mental illness of some kind or another.
1: Yeah, and one of the things we discussed when we met to, to review the topic a little bit is you know, with the physical illness, often we don't see it in somebody else. You don't know that the person sitting next to you has high blood pressure. But if you, a mental illness typically has a behavior. Uh, Results And so it's very obvious what it is. And so there's often two problems with that. One is the the sufferer tends to start to uh, have their identity based on that problem. And the other is those of us who don't know what's going on tend to judge that person as to, you know, they know what's the right behavior and they're not doing it. So, you know, I'm going to avoid them and we pull back and and that leads to further rejection and fear on their part. So. It's kind of a double edged sword with uh, mental illness.
0: Yeah. So, the key question I think we can wrestle with with this topic this morning is this when it comes to mental illness, what can we control and what can we not control on our own in any given moment? What do we have the capacity just through our own thinking to be able to, to redirect or control and what can't we control? So, let, let me just take one for example. Let's just take anxiety. That's a common uh, form of mental illness that we see in our culture today. We see in the Bible, it discusses that there's a pattern that God encourages us to live by when it comes to anxiety or worry, right? I mean, think about Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. It says, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then if we do that, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. As Matthew chapter 6 is part of that. And in that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke about worry, right? And he encouraged us to not worry about anything, including the daily details of our lives. Now, I say that to say this. Obviously, when Jesus was speaking about this topic, when Paul was speaking about this topic, they were speaking to the worry and the anxiety that most of us in the world today will deal with on a day-to-day basis. Those things, those worries that we can control. What they weren't speaking to in this moment were mental illnesses that strip away that ability to control those things. And that may be factors in a person's life that make it very difficult to simply follow these patterns, whether it's due to something physical in the brain or due to trauma in the past, which has created damage. So... Say, for example, someone's having a panic attack. In that moment, there you know, it's a moment when the brain and the body are reacting in a way that is beyond that person's control, right? Now, we as good Christian people, we can point to Philippians chapter 4, and we can point to Matthew chapter 6 and say, you know what, you've got to learn to just stop worrying so much and trust God. And that moment, that can be so deflating and so frustrating because we don't know whether that... for that person, if that is truly a situation of of anxiety that's beyond their control, and so not only are they dealing with the reality of, of the people noticing that, but they're also dealing with it of thinking, I am such a failure because I'm not doing a good job of controlling this. So now, with that said, let me make this a little bit more complicated. We also have evidence from the Bible that there, that there are times when mental illness can have a spiritual component to it involving uh, something that's demonic in nature, right? I mean, we see in, for example, I think it's in Luke chapter 8, the story of the man from Gadara and how Jesus went to him. And he had, we just hear these horrible stories about how he lived his life. And uh, it, we find from that story that he was under a demonic possession. We don't know for how long. Now, there's a difference between a demonic influence, which many of us you know, sin is a demonic influence and to some extent, right? I mean, so we all are under a demonic influence at times because we make those choices to sin. And I won't get into all that detail this morning, but there are a variety of reasons why we can come under a demonic influence for a period of time. But there's a difference between that and demonic possession, which is very, very rare, but it is, it is possible for those who aren't following Christ and for those who dabble in demonic or occult activity. We know uh, from Scripture that when we accept Christ as our Savior, we accept the Holy Spirit to come and live in our lives. And the, the God's Spirit is reigning within us. And so we don't have the ability to be controlled by a demonic influence as well as the Spirit of God. But we can certainly be influenced by those things. So with all that said, let's get back to this idea of what we can and what we can't control. The best approach that I think we can take to this is just to approach it holistically. Number one, by approaching it with prayer, bringing these things, these concerns that we have to God, these feelings that we're having, these, these illnesses that we're struggling with, and asking God to take control of them, surrendering them over to God. But at the same time, that we uh, balance that with the medical attention that needs to be addressed. Because some of these things can actually be controlled very well through things like Meeting with a doctor or a psychiatrist, meeting with a counselor, and working through a process of of understanding through medications as well as through different techniques that can be learned through counseling, like, for instance, cognitive behavioral therapy, how we can better control our brains in moments when we are struggling with being able to do so because of worry or anxiety or depression or whatnot. So let me close this topic by saying this. What what can we... uh, what kind of encouragement can all of us in the church give those who we know who are struggling with mental illness of various kinds? Jim?
1: Well, we we thought of two things. Uh, first of all, we can continue to reinforce that they're loved and accepted and that their identity is not found in their illness. And second is to, because of the stigma, often people are reluctant to see a doctor or to see a counselor. And and that we can have a role to encourage people to, you know, take what uh, kind of a holistic um, approach to this, and and not feel like it's a value judgment on them, and that they are, uh, which they're going to feel shame and guilt probably anyway. So we can encourage them that there may be medical factors beyond their control, and that there's nothing wrong with uh, seeking help. So those are the two things that I think we can do to help them. That's great.
0: All right, so our third topic this morning is tattoos. And the question is this, is it taboo to have a tattoo as a Christian? Tim, what do you think? That's
3: exactly why I wanted this topic, because of the rhyming nature of it. I (laughs) thought it would be very easy. Uh, This is going to be a fairly short one, because there seems to be only one verse in the Bible that seems to speak towards this. Uh, It is in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28. I'll read it for you. Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Uh, that's the NIV. Uh, other, um, other translations don't mention the word tattoo. They, they, they actually speak to carving. It's almost like, um, almost like the practice at that time was of a branding. Um, so this was during the time when the Hebrew people have been rescued from slavery in Egypt And they are on their long journey towards the Promised Land. But first, they camp out for about two years under Mount Sinai, and they are getting uh, first the Ten Commandments, later 613 laws um, in in the Hebrew culture that are how they are to come together as a society. They're not necessarily um, always intended to be directly for our relationship with God. In part, it's how do you live in the desert? How do you live amongst one another when you've not necessarily governed um, as a body before? So um so that is the verse. Do not cut yourself for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Many people when and scholars when they do the commentary on this quickly move to First Corinthians <laughs> that says, uh 1 Corinthians chapter ten, verse 31. So whether you, he'd been talking about uh, what you eat, etc. But he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Uh, my little commentary note says that um, God's love should so permeate our motives um, that, that we should constantly be asking ourselves, with almost any choice we make, will this glorify God? Can, can I use this choice I'm about to make to honor God? So those are the closest things that most scholars and people get towards
0: discussing this this topic. A couple of things I can add about this. Uh, one is that this in Leviticus 19:28, that passage was uh, God was speaking to what was what the Israelite people were seeing in their culture at that day, which was in the ancient when you think about this, you know, when the law was given, the Israelites had moved from Egypt into this land of Canaan where there were cultures already established all around them. All the ites, right, that you see in the Old Testament, the Amalekites and the Hivites and all those other ites. They were all living in this culture at the time. And many of them practiced these ancient Canaanite uh, forms of worshipping of various gods. And in that practice, oftentimes they would cut themselves as a form of worshipping God or they would brand themselves, leave tattoo marks, what we would say today, on themselves which were reflections of the gods that they worshipped. So what we see in this passage in Leviticus is God is saying, don't. He's not saying necessarily, you know, don't put you know, a passage of scripture on your on your body. What he's saying is, don't reflect the culture around you that is worshiping these other gods. Set yourself apart because I am God. And there was this temptation for them to follow along and, and kind of absorb some of the things that they saw in their own and the other religions and cultures, as we see you know, with the story with the golden calf. You know, where they they just kind of followed along the path. And so God was asking them, don't follow down this path and put markings on yourself that show that you are worshiping other gods.
3: Um, Right. As a matter of perspective, this entire chapter is just um, a a grouping of all the laws. The very first one begins with, um, uh, do do not turn to idols or make gods of cast metal for yourselves, etc. I am the Lord your God, so... Obviously, the beginning of the Ten Commandments, they, they get to very practical things that are of that time. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. That would mean that we would all get our paychecks every day. Um, do not wear clothing woven, woven of two kinds of material. So there must have been reasons at the time for some of these, um, some of these laws kind of for this moment and presumably this is one of them. But this is what the yeah. scripture says about it.
0: And that speaks to something. For those of you who are part of a. You heard a message I gave many weeks ago. Where I described the various types of laws in the Old Testament. Do you remember that? How there was, there was civil law. There's ceremonial law. And there's moral law in the Old Testament. And moral law is a law that we follow today. Even under Christ. As New Testament followers of Jesus. But there's the civil law. And the, and the moral law obviously was you know, how we're to live. Uh, in loving God and loving our neighbor. The civil law, was. F- we, we find the Old Testament, and that was basically, as, as God gave them the law, part of it was the civil law, which was helping them form a government, helping them form a nation, and c- creating concepts of justice and punishment and things like that, so that there could be a civil society. And then there was also ceremonial law, which were, before the time of Christ, the ways that they atoned for their sins. And so what we see here is that, this in Leviticus 19, we're not looking at moral law here as you can obviously see from the things that Tim is sharing. But this is more ceremonial law kinds of stuff that's being listed here, as well as a few civil laws that are there. All right. Well, let's move on to the last question here this morning, which is on judging others. And here's the question. And this is actually a verbatim question from one of you in the congregation. I used it.
2: It was actually adjusted slightly, but it's similar to it. Yeah, it was.
0: All right. So here's here's the slightly adjusted question. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, contains a familiar quote from Jesus about not judging others. The, you know, the famous passage, judge, lest you be ju- judge not lest you be judged. But some people seem to use that as an excuse to absolve their own sinful behaviors. And Jesus certainly seemed to pass judgment on others at certain times. So are we called to judge or not? And did Jesus contradict himself? Brian, what do you think?
2: Sure, um... Well, so so let's let's be honest. Let's look at a couple things that Jesus said. Jesus did say, do not judge others, uh, and you will not be judged. And and don't condemn others, or it will come back against you. Forgive others, and you'll be forgiven. So he says that. But at the same time, this is the same Jesus who railed on the Pharisees, right? You Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Fools, what sorrow awaits you. You don't enter the kingdom yourselves, and you prevent others from entering. Those, so, so, you might look at that and say, is Jesus contradicting himself? Well, there's a couple things I think we'd have to say. First of all, we need to understand who Jesus is, and we also have to recognize his motives. So, if, if we uh, could go to the next slide. The first thing we need to remember is that Scripture tells us that God alone is the ultimate judge for humanity. He is the one, as Dave said, some, again, a number of weeks ago, we, we, we are not over each other, right? We are, we are given dominion over the other animals, but not over each other. That's God, ultimately, for judgment. But Jesus was God incarnate. So though we don't have the right to pass final judgment, he does. But Jesus didn't use that authority to coldly reject other people. And you can see throughout Scripture how, how Jesus is constantly bringing opportunities for repentance. So when he calls out sin, he gives opportunity to repent. That's his ultimate goal. Paul wrote it this way in Romans 2.4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Can't you see that His kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? God is patient with us because He wants us to turn back to Him. That's true for those of us who are already in in the family of God, and that's certainly true for those who are not believers in Christ. He wants them to become that so that they can be made one with God and with Him. So, Jesus showed compassion to sinners... And he did correct those who proudly thought themselves to be saints, right? And I think that can kind of help us understand how we deal with this topic of judging others. The first thing is this, and Robert, if you could put up the next slide, the first thing is this, that there is an appropriate distinction between how we treat those outside the church and those inside the church. There is. It is appropriate that we treat them differently. We shouldn't expect... Christ-centered behavior out of people who have not given their lives to Christ, right? People who don't have God's spirit within them. That's their greatest need. If, the, if people don't know Jesus, their greatest need is not to get cleaned up. Our job is not to clean them up. Our job is to bring them to Christ. Let them come into a relationship with God. God begins the work of sanctification. But if we try to sanctify people before they come to know Christ, we, we're in danger of pushing them away, Right? Look at what Paul wrote here in 1 Corinthians. He says this, When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin, or are greedy, or cheat people, or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. Now that sounds kind of interesting, doesn't it? I mean, that, that pretty much, Paul's pretty much saying right there, we're, we're not only allowed to, but we're supposed to judge, I'll use the word judge, those inside the church. What, what does he mean by that? Why is that okay? Well, let's contrast the, 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 the non-believer with the believer, right? A non-believer needs to come to know Jesus. We have already been forgiven. We've already been set free. Our greatest need is to stay close to God. We need to stay close to him in a relationship with him. And so when someone who is a Christian is engaged in a sin, it's, there's danger there. It's danger of that becoming a wedge between them and their relationship with God. It's something that stands between them and staying close to God. Hebrews 3 says, Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that, you, um, make sure that your own hearts are not turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. So this is why we do need to speak up when we see fellow believers that are in a place where they shouldn't be. It's not—it's not so that we cast judgment and, and condemnation; it's to help draw them back. And, and that's really the the next big distinction I think we need to understand what it means to to rightly judge others. If we could again go to the next slide. Our goal is always restoration. It is never condemnation. Our goal is to extend grace, not indictment. We are called to lift people up, not to crush them. Our goal is forgiveness and not rejection. We greet people with open arms. We don't give them the stiff arm, right? Our goal is intercession And not gossip. We don't speak evil of others. We speak to God on their behalf. Restoration, not condemnation. And so, perhaps one of the most valuable questions to ask is this. We're fallible human beings ourselves, right? So what is it that we're truly judging? Are we called to judge the person or do we judge the behavior? Um, Put a different way, are we judging the sin or the sinner? I think uh, Jude has a really helpful scripture here that deals with this particular question. He says, you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. So it's clear from scripture that we're supposed to show Mercy to those who are struggling while at the same time we hate the sins that are causing them to struggle. Um, Many of you probably heard the phrase, hate the sin, love the sinner. Have have a lot of you heard that? I'll be honest with you, for a long time, that phrase seemed kind of trite to me. I didn't like it very much. But there really is some wisdom hidden in that statement. Let, Let me kind of pull the thread on this. Why do we hate sin? If we're supposed to hate sin, why do we hate it? It's not just because we're a bunch of prudes and killjoys. That's, that's not why we hate sin. We hate sin because of the damage it causes to people that we love. Paul said that the wages of sin is death, and whether it's in a physical or an emotional or a relational or even a spiritual sense. Simply put, sin hurts people. And God, his greatest call on us is to love him and to love others around us. And so... We hate sin because we love the sinner, right? We love the people that are around us. We want what is best for them. And so we know that sin may be damaging them. And, we, and, that's, and that's when we kind of, that's when we have to step in. That's when we have to gently but firmly step in and have a conversation, maybe a difficult conversation about, have you thought about what you're doing right now? Is this where God would want you to be? Last week, Dave talked about suicide, and one of the things he told us was this. He said emphatically that we are not to mind our own business if we know someone is struggling with thoughts of taking their own life, right? We understand that. We also understand that when it comes to things like destructive and debilitating addictions. We recognize that the loving thing to do sometimes is to intervene. Certainly, it's not to stand back and be silent as we watch our loved ones suffer, we need to look at sin the same way. We need to recognize that the loving thing to do is to gently and but decisively challenge other believers who are trapped in sin so that they may be able to break free of it. And they can break free the death that it could cause in their lives. I want to take a look to finally hear at this verse from James. James 5, it says this, My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. So, this kind of judgment is not condemnation. This kind of judgment is good news and it's freedom. Now, when we were talking about this a couple weeks ago, um, I really appreciated, Tim, something that you had to say. Um, kind of some clarifications around the, the, um, how we interact with non believers in this, in this area.
3: Yeah, I just found myself thinking that um, certainly we are, to, we are allowed to lovingly challenge one another if we're all within the faith, and, and of course we can speak frankly to people that we're in a close relationship with, family, even if they're in the faith or not in the faith, we just have to be careful about that. Um, and I thought, but but for anyone outside of those two camps, someone we're in a close relationship with or a fellow believer... Are we, to be, are we to remain silent about our faith? And, and I don't think that's what we're to do. You know, we're to live our faith out loud. People should know who we are and who we belong to, that we are Christ followers, that we belong to God, the Creator. And so we have to do that in a loving way that's not a judging way. Um, I remember this uh, quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. He said, Preach the gospel at all times. And use words when you have to. Use words when necessary. But otherwise, let's make sure that people know who we are as Christians, that the, the tenets of our faith are love and mercy and forgiveness and grace and tenderness. Um, this is who God has called us to be. Um, You know, in the Old Testament, God often spoke either directly from the storm, from the clouds, from a burning bush, or through angels. In the New Testament, God spoke through Jesus, and then after Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit speaks through us. God lives within us now. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit resides in us, and we are now the messengers. And so though though we're not to challenge and condemn and judge non-believers we certainly are to live our faith out loud and make sure that they know um they know that we know god and that if they want to know god that we are
0: resources for them we Mm -hmm. just have to do that in a way that's not judging awesome well thank you guys for being a part of this panel today and helping out with these questions um so as we wrap up this time in uh, taboo here, uh, let me just share with you something that may be obvious to some of you that, was an, that may be, you may have thought was an oversight, but it wasn't. And that was many of you, gave, you submitted topics around human sexuality to us, right? I, I, had, I had a lot of requests about everything from uh, what, what, is, what, is, what should really be our response in the 21st century to sex outside of marriage to um, homosexuality to gender identification there were so many things that you guys sent in and as I start looking about at that and praying at that, over that I made a decision to hold off on building that into this series and here's why because I didn't want to take topics that are so sensitive and so important to our culture today and just address them with a quick 30 minute message on these different topics I feel like that would not do this justice so rather than that, I am spending some time, and I have been now for a number of weeks since I first got these requests, building out an entire series around human sexuality that I hope that we'll be able to address this fall a little bit later once I feel like we're ready. Well, we will start at Genesis chapter 1 and we'll kind of work through Scripture holistically to see what does God have to say to us about all aspects of human sexuality and where there are those tension points. How are we to respond to God in those? So just to say, hopefully it's coming. Uh, Once I feel like I'm ready to tackle this thing, I'm going to. Not before, but hopefully by this fall we'll be able to do that. So what are we going to start next week? Well, Next week we're going to be starting a series a little bit different called God's Bumper Stickers. Now, you may think, what in the world is that about? Well, let me tell you something. I'm going to tell you an observation that I have had about our culture. There are a couple places in our culture where we like to brag. One is our social media feeds. On Facebook and Instagram, or whatever you're on, we like to talk about everything from how good of a cooks we are to you know, bragging about our kids, right? Anything that's really valuable and important to us, we talk about on our social media feeds. But I've also noticed that we tend to do that with our bumper stickers as well. And whereas social media feeds, things like that just kind of come and go, the things that are really important to us, that we really value, they kind of get permanently stuck on our mobile advertising wall that we drive down the street with, right? And so we see on that, on the, on these, on our cars, things like whether or not we are uh, NRA members or PETA members, or whether or not we are, um, um, are military vets, or whether we've run marathons, or whatever it is, we tend to advertise on the backs of our cars. And I, it made me start thinking one day. I thought, you know what? If God drove a car, what would be on his bumper sticker? Now, granted, this is kind of a moot question because God's everywhere, right? So there's nowhere for him to go. He is everywhere already. But I just thought, what would be those things that he would value? Would he brag about himself? Probably not. I think, though, he would brag on his kids. And so over these next few weeks, we're going to talk about if God had a car, what would be on his bumper stickers and why. And we'll look at not only what God has to say about us, but how he wants us to see ourselves. So with that, if you'd like some more information about the series, or if you'd like to kind of promote this with some some of your friends, there are some cards at Guest Services Center. You can take these and hand these out to friends, or you can even stick them in the mail and mail them to friends with a little personal note on them. But let me close this out with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity today for us to dive into your word in multiple areas. And be able to come to some understanding of some really tough and taboo topics of our culture today. Lord, I thank you for how you have worked throughout this series here at Grace to help us, to stretch us in some ways. And God, I pray that through what we have learned, that you would continue to use us to draw more and more people closer to you. Lord, also we ask that you would use some of the things that we have learned to draw us closer to you in our own relationship. In Jesus' name.